So there's a phrase that I had been told a lot as a kid, and I thought I would probably outgrow this phrase, and I never did. In fact, this phrase carried on into my adult, my young adult years, as well as into my adult years now. My kids have said this phrase to me. My wife has said this phrase to me. My parents had said this phrase to me all the time. Many of you have probably thought this phrase about me at some point. Let me tell a story and tell you what the phrase is. So I turned 16, I got my license, saved up, my parents shipped in, got my very first car, super excited, and I take my car, I'm going out for the first time, and I begin to back out of my driveway, and I back my nice new car into my old nasty minivan. What a great way to start. Like, I got my car, I got my keys, and now I've got a busted bumper on my car. So I go inside again, not like something major, but that's not how you want to start your first time out in your car either. Go inside. I tell my parents what happened. They asked one question. You can guess what that is. Are you okay? I'm like, yes, I'm okay. They said, good. And here came the phrase that they said right after that. Brian, what were you thinking? That's it. What were you thinking? Did you not use your mirrors? Did you not look behind you? Did you not see the big old minivan that's always parked in the driveway? What were you thinking? It's a phrase my parents got sick of saying again and again and again. Wasn't that long ago during quarantine, we bought ourselves a trampoline because that's what you do when you're stuck at home and you're not supposed to go to the hospital. So you buy a trampoline for your kids. Yep. So I get on the trampoline. I had a trampoline as a kid, was t had a lot of fun. So I know all the flips and twists and everything. So I'm showing my kids how cool dad is. And I do a couple sort of twists and a couple kind of flips, land a little bit funny. My kid, my oldest, Connor, looks at me and says, Dad, you're like almost 40 and really old. What are you thinking? And I'm like, we're in a totally new stage now. First of all, I'm nowhere near 40, just to be clear. Not that that's old. I've accepted that. But then for my kid to look at me and say, what are you thinking? My goodness. And then I try. I'm not the best husband in the world. I really do try to be. This is sometimes where it's the thought that counts. I try to be helpful around the house as much as I possibly can. And so one of the ways that I try to be helpful, which ends up not being so helpful, is with laundry. So for me, I see laundry, and I'm like, this is an easy fix. We're going to take all of the laundry and put it all in the, the washing machine. And as long as it's on cold, cold, you should be good. Right? I see like wives right now just like, oh, no, he didn't. So I do that, and then my wife sees it later, where then I'm pulling everything out. She's like, did you put all of that in the same load? And I said, well, yeah. And she looks at me and says, you guessed it, Brian, what are you, finish it, thinking. What are you thinking? Yesterday, I had the privilege. See, I get excited about this, and I might split the room on this one and at home. I put my Christmas lights up on my house yesterday. Thank you, thank you. I know those of you are silently booing me, that's okay. But I saw some of my neighbors driving and even walking by, and they didn't say it out loud, but I got the look that said, you're kidding me. What are you thinking? It's not even Thanksgiving yet. What were you thinking? Those of you that follow me on social media, you know that I recently got a dog. Every single time I look at that dog, I ask myself that question. Brian, what were you thinking? How could you? What were you thinking? That's the question I want all of us to be wrestling with this morning. What are you thinking? What does your mind dwell on? What do your thoughts hold to? What, are you, what thoughts are you capturing? What thoughts are you letting go? And more so, where are those thoughts taking you? When you let a thought 
move beyond just one thought and it becomes multiple thoughts and then it becomes this is what I'm thinking about all the time. Then it becomes to consume your mind. Where do those thoughts take you? What are you thinking? What shapes those thoughts? What are the patterns you see in your thoughts? Who guides those thoughts? Who speaks into those thoughts? What are the filters for those thoughts? Who do you allow to control those thoughts? Can you control those thoughts? What are you thinking? See, we've been looking at these early churches, these local churches in the book of Revelation. There's seven. And the two we're gonna see this morning had about the same problem. It was a very common problem that we're gonna see with both. And it was a problem with their thinking. And Jesus is gonna call them out, maybe not these exact words, but something along the lines of, church, what are you thinking? What were you thinking? So as we look at these churches, and we're gonna see what they were thinking and where their thoughts led them, I want you to also be making this personal. Where are my thoughts? What are my thoughts? What am I personally thinking and what shapes those thoughts? So let's look at the first church we're gonna see. We're gonna finish it up. These are the last two we're gonna look at and we'll end the series. The first one's gonna be in Revelation chapter two. The second one in Revelation chapter three. See if you can find the common thread of what problem they had with their thinking. Here it is, chapter two out of Revelation, starting in verse 18. To the angel of the church in Thyatira, right? These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. He says, I know your deeds. And look at all these deeds. Look at what Jesus points out. He says, I know your deeds, your love and faithfulness, your service, your perseverance, and that you are doing now more than you did at first. That's incredible. Now, as we've been looking at these churches, if you've been with us, each church we've seen, you notice that Jesus, for the most part, gives good job on these, not so good job on this, so therefore do this. We usually see those. Now here, the good job part is incredible. Jesus goes on and on and on. I know your deeds, your faith, your love, your service, your perseverance, and you're doing so much more now than you did at first. Like, that's incredible. Out of all the commendations that, God, that Jesus gives these local churches, this might be the best one. Because there's so many, you're doing this well, you're doing a great job here, you're doing so much more than you used to, you're growing. Awesome job, church, but we know there's another side to that as well. Verse 20, nevertheless, I have this against you, you tolerate, say that word with me, say tolerate, tolerate. Nevertheless, I have this against you, you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. Now, real quick history lesson. When Jesus says Jezebel, probably not talking about a specific person named Jezebel. That was a name actually taken from Old Testament. Read about the story, King Ahab, Jezebel, Elijah. Fascinating story, but Jezebel in the Old Testament was this evil, evil woman that led people astray and actually persecuted the followers of God. So here for Jesus to call somebody a Jezebel is saying a horrible person that does not follow Jesus, that does not love Jesus, and would do anything to mislead followers of Jesus. So they had someone or a group of people that Jesus kind of named Jezebel, saying they're leading people away from me. You're doing all these things great. Your service, your faith, your love, your works, so many great things, yet what was the word you tolerate? This person or this group that's leading people astray, leading people far from God. It seems kind of harsh for Jesus to 
to call out this one little bitty thing that they tolerated based on all the other great things that they did. It seems like the good would outweigh the bad here. Jesus, don't you remember what you just told us we were good at? The faith and the love and the service and all that, and and you're really gonna call us out on this one itty-bitty little thing that we tolerate? You see, Jesus sees something beyond just what we see, where tolerating goes. That what is tolerated today is embraced tomorrow. And Jesus recognizes that for this early church, they were in a very dangerous place. That because they were tolerating sin, they were tolerating somebody that was leading them into sin and leading them away from God. Because that was being tolerated, maybe in that moment it wasn't that big of a deal, but Jesus knew where that would go. Because what is tolerated today is embraced tomorrow. Did you catch the thinking of this early church, Thyatira? It's not that big of a deal. That's why we tolerate things, right? We tolerate something that's not really worth making an issue over. We tolerate something that doesn't seem to be a big deal. My kids, all three of them, they find rocks like this in my, in my backyard, and they collect them. And they'll come up and say, Dad, Dad, can we get like a bag? Can we have like Tupperware? Can we have, can we have a bucket so that we can collect all of these rocks, these small little bitty rocks? And I'm like, yeah, sure. What's the big deal? Doesn't seem like a very big deal. They're just little rocks. They're not gonna cause any problems. They're not gonna hurt anything or anyone with these little rocks. Well, then I would go out mowing and I would run over these itty bitty little rocks and it's just like bullets spraying both sides. And I'm like, what is happening? I'm like, I would go in my house and I would start just walking through my house like a normal person and it wasn't a big deal until I started stepping on these little rocks all over my house. See, something that doesn't seem like a very big deal, if left unconfronted and left unchecked, it most certainly can cause bigger problems. That's what this local church is dealing with. There's this thing that they're tolerating. And Jesus says, there's no room for tolerating sin. It is a big deal. You might think it's no big deal, but he calls them out on and says, in reality, it is a very big deal. Do you see the problem with their thinking? It's not a big deal. It's something small. We just tolerate it because we don't want to deal with it. We don't want to make anybody upset, so we just tolerate it. They tolerated it, and Jesus called them out on it. All right, second church. Revelation chapter three, the church of Laodicea. Verse 14, to the angel of the church in Laodicea, right? These are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. Now hold up there, because I love paying attention to these. We've noticed that each church, each of these seven churches, Jesus describes himself in a very specific way for that church in their context. I love this one. He says, these are the words of the amen, meaning Jesus saying, I'm it, I'm the end, I'm completion, I get the final word. It's such a dad thing to say, isn't it? Now, before we go into anything, Laodicea, before I say anything, before I challenge you, before I give you any of my words of insight, before I I, I tell you what you did well, what you didn't do well, before anything, know that I'm getting the final say. So no excuses, no passing the blame, no pointing the finger, I'm gonna get the final words here. He says, I'm the amen the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. Now, here's what he calls him out on, verse 15. He says, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot, and I wish that you were either one or the other, so that because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich, and I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing, but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, 
poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Verse 19, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Now let me kind of back up and walk you through what Jesus is really saying here. First of all, did you notice Jesus didn't say anything good about this church? <laughs> the one we saw with Thyatira was like, great job on serving and great job on your faith and great job with loving and great job on doing so much more. You've grown a lot. Granted, you're tolerated and we need to deal with that, but great job. The church of Laodicea, oh, let me get started. He says the same thing three different times in different ways. You're neither hot nor cold. You're lukewarm, and I don't want to have anything to do with you, he said. Now, understand, when Jesus is saying hot and cold, he's not saying, like, right and wrong. He's saying you're neither. You're not doing anything. See, understand, in order for something to become hot, you have to do something intentionally to make it hot. You have to put effort and energy to make something hot. The exact same thing is true with cold. If you wanna make something cold, you have to put effort and energy. You have to do something to make it cold. If you want something to be lukewarm or room temperature, what do you have to do to it? Nothing. And that's his point. You're not doing anything to make anything happen, to cause change, to move and grow. You're not doing anything, and so you're lukewarm, your room temperature. Now, we're gonna settle something once and for all here, and it caused a major problem at the 9.30, so I expect the same at the 11.15. We're gonna settle this once and for all. There are some of you in this room that feel like it's okay to eat cold pizza right out of the refrigerator. There are some of you that will have nothing to do with that, so real quick, if you are a, I am not just okay with it, but I prefer cold pizza, where are you at? I am disgusted. <laughs> Absolutely disgusted with you. My wife is in that same category. I will catch her pulling a slice of pizza out of the refrigerator and just start nibbling on it. And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. When we bought that pizza, was it hot or cold? Not rhetorical, which was it? It was hot. So if we're gonna eat it again, it better be hot. This has unfortunately translated and transferred down to my kids, where I'll see them walking around with cold pizza, and I'm like, what is happening to my children? How are we teaching them that this is okay? It is gross, it is disgusting, there's probably something wrong with it. You have to heat it up, and there's a correct way to heat up or reheat pizza. We do not use the microwave. Don't say microwave when you reheat pizza. No, no, you put the oven on 350 degrees, you put it on a stone for about 10 minutes, it's perfect. Now there are some instances where a toaster, a toaster oven would be acceptable, but never a microwave and never straight out of the fridge. It's gotta be hot pizza for some of you, which I cannot understand why. It can apparently be cold pizza, but nobody says, I'd love just a slice of room temperature pizza. No. Now, both will become lukewarm if you don't do anything with it. You take the cold pizza out of the fridge and put it on the counter. You take the hot pizza out of the oven and you put it on the counter. You leave it there overnight. They're both room temperature, aren't they? Now, here's what happens when you leave something on the counter for too long. It goes bad, doesn't it? It starts to spoil. It goes bad. It becomes rotten. See, that's what Jesus has seen in this church. You're not putting any effort and energy into anything. You're just content sitting there. And you've become lukewarm. 
Understand lukewarm or, or room temperature. What happens to the pizza on the counter is exactly what was happening to this early church is they are conforming to their environment. Right? They are becoming room temperature. The cultural norms around them, they have become like the world that they live in. As Christians, as followers of Jesus, as believers of Jesus, we are supposed to be different. And yes, that takes that work, and there's always this tension and conflict. Read Galatians chapter 5, and you're going to see this battle of my sinful nature, but also the, the spirit. And my sinful nature and the ways of the world want me to think like this and say this and act this way. But then God's word and his Holy Spirit in me is leading me to think differently, live differently, talk differently, be differently, everything differently. And so, yes, there's this constant tension and conflict. But for the church of Laodicea, there was no conflict because they just became like the world around them. You catch that phrase that Jesus called out on them? They thought, they said, I'm rich, I've acquired wealth, check this out, and I don't need a thing. We're good. That's what they thought. I've got everything I need. I don't need anything. I don't need Jesus. I don't need a savior. I don't need fill in the blank. We're good because we've taken care of it ourselves. They stop doing anything and become lukewarm. And we know where that goes of spoiled and then rotten. So Jesus says, you've got to change something. I would say, many, many might say that the opposite of courage is being a coward, like afraid. But I would say what we're seeing here is more of the opposite of courage because it takes courage to follow Jesus and to live and talk and think differently. I would say the opposite of courage is conformity. It doesn't take any work at all to conform. It doesn't take any work at all to become lukewarm. It doesn't take any work at all to become room temperature. That's easy. If I just become like the people around me, if I just become like the culture around me, that doesn't take any courage or effort. And that's what we see with the church of Laodicea. But we are called to be courageous, to live differently, to follow Jesus, to follow in his footsteps, to follow his example, no matter what. You catch the two problems with the thinking? The first church, the, the church that had the tolerance, well, their thinking was it's no big deal. Maybe it's easier to not say anything. Let's just go along with it for now. I don't really agree with it, but let's not do anything it's not that big of a deal. And Jesus says, no, it is a big deal. The church of Laodicea, they're saying, no, we're good. We don't need anything. We don't need to do anything. We are fine the way that we are. And Jesus is pleading with both. Change your thinking. Start there. I believe that if you change your thinking, you can change your life. And that is not, ooh, just be an optimist and everything magically gets better. It's not to just wish things away or wish things to be. No, think of what happens in your mind. The beliefs that you hold, the faith that you hold tightly to, what do you think about when things get difficult, when things get tough? When your mind begins to wander, what do you do with those thoughts? Because out of our thoughts, eventually our feet and hands follow. Our actions follow our thoughts. We talk a whole lot about our heart and most certainly we should, but don't neglect your mind. Don't miss your thoughts. Don't miss what Jesus even calls us to do with our thoughts. We see it in these churches. We're also gonna see it from the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 12. Listen to this with me. 
Romans 12, Paul writes this, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, hear the urgency there, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, so because of what he has done for you already, so we're not doing this to earn something from him, no, because of what he's given us, because of what he's done, this is how we choose to live to honor him. In view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, meaning every single day, that tension we talked about, the tension of following God versus following the ways of the world, that, that's in conflict. Yes, we constantly die to ourselves and follow him. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is true worship, not just what we do at 11 o'clock on a Sunday morning. Verse two, do not conform, there's that word, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your, say it with me, the renewing of your what? Your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Please understand what this is saying, what Paul's saying, and what he's not saying. Paul is not saying, modify your behavior. So often, that's where we start. Here's what I need to change. Even go back to what Jesus said to these two churches. He doesn't really say, change what you're doing. So often, we're quick to try to modify our behavior. I'll say it with husbands. And they tell me, man, here's what's going on in my marriage, and, and I know I need to do this better, and I know I need to do this, and I need to stop doing that. And they give me all this list of all the things they need to do or stop doing, and I say, that's great, but let's start in your heart and your mind. What are you allowing in your mind? What are you allowing in your thoughts? What are you thinking? Because if you cannot control, please don't miss this, if you cannot control your thoughts, there's no chance you're ever gonna control your actions. If you cannot control your thoughts, you will not be able to control your actions. So start with your thoughts. It's not about modifying behavior. It's about being transformed. Paul does not use the word modify. He uses the word transform. So if we're not gonna conform, we're gonna do the hard work, we're gonna be different. So we're not gonna conform to the pattern of this world, but we desire to be transformed. How do we get transformed? By the renewing of your mind. That's allowing Jesus, not just in your heart, but into your mind as well, and it's what we think about. If you change your thinking, you change your life. Because when you let Jesus in your mind and we think of the things of Jesus, it truly changes everything. When you change your thoughts, it changes how you view your spouse. It changes what it means to be a husband, changes what it means to be a wife. It changes how you parent. It changes how you love your neighbor. It changes how you love your, the, the people you don't even like. It changes how you pray for people. It changes how you view your boss. It changes how you view your employees. It changes how you view your job. It changes how you view your purpose in life and what you're actually called to do. It changes your finances. It changes, do you catch it? Everything. If you let Jesus in your heart and your mind first because it's our perspective, isn't it? It's what we hold on to. And where those thoughts go, we will see us go as well. So let me give you two suggestions, and I say suggestions, we're gonna see these in scripture. This is not a therapy session, although maybe this helps, maybe this counts potentially. <laughs> I'm sure there's more, but let me at least give you two that we see out of scripture in, in this context on how to renew your mind, just like we read in in Romans chapter 12, here's two ways to renew your mind. The first one, fight the battles of your mind. Fight the battles of your mind. I said that if you cannot control your thoughts, you're not gonna be able to control your actions, meaning you have to be willing to engage in the fight. You ever daydream, right? You just kind of let your thoughts wander. You get bored, and all of a sudden your thoughts just wander. You have to be willing to, when those thoughts wander, 
to grab a hold of them and say, no, we're not going down this path. We are gonna go this way instead. Again, it's a constant conflict. It's a constant tension. Laodicea was not willing to confront the realities. And because they refused to confront it, they ended up conforming. So don't get stuck in, I don't wanna do, no, there's gonna be a battle. That's okay, know it, embrace it, engage in it. Our mind is always wanting to take us someplace else and we have to capture those thoughts and say, no, I'm gonna make you obedient to Jesus. I'm going to capture my thoughts. I'm gonna fight that battle and not just let my mind wander wherever it goes. Let me give you a good example. This whole series, encouraged, I encourage you to read through the Psalms. Psalm 143, verse five, a great passage, not just for Thanksgiving week, but also in regards to how we fight the battles of our mind. Here's what David, the psalmist, writes. He says, I remember the days of long ago, you know, sometimes you have to think back pretty far to be thankful. If you're in a season, you're like, man, I, it's, it's terrible. There's a lot going on. David had to think back a ways. That's all right. I remember the days of long ago. I meditate on all your works and consider what your hands have done. Meditate to mentally chew on who God is and what he's done, what he's done for you personally and in your life and in, in our lives as his children. To remember back to the cross to remember the empty tomb, to remember that the Holy Spirit lives in you and in me. I meditate, I consider, those are all ways we fight the battle of our mind. Now that's a great verse, oh, but it's better in context. Listen to the situation David was in when he meditated and when he thought of God's goodness. Verse three, just a few verses prior. The enemy pursues me, he crushes me to the ground, he makes me dwell in the darkness like those long dead. So my spirit grows faint within me and my heart within me is dismayed. Now, if we were to stop there, it would be very easy for us to let our mind wander down that road. God, where are you? God, how could you? God, are you even there? I thought you promised that things would get better. I thought you said that it wouldn't happen like this. I've been praying for so long and it hasn't happened the way that I thought it would. Where are you now? If we let our mind wander based on this situation David was in, we could all relate to that. But David fought the battle of his mind. And in one of his darkest, most difficult moments, he says, I remember the days of long ago. I meditate on all your works and consider what your hands have done. Fight the battle of your mind goes to the second suggestion I would give you. Focus your thoughts on God's truth. That's what David did. It wasn't optimism. It wasn't wishful thinking. It was on the absolute truth from God. I want to give you some truths of God in just a second, but before I do that, I want you to wrestle with the opposite of that. What lies are you thinking of? What lies have your thoughts gone to. For the church of Thyatira, it was the lie of, it's not that bad. It could be worse. For the church of Laodicea, the lie was, we're good. We don't need to do anything else. We don't need anything. We don't need anyone. We've got it ourselves. There's plenty of other lies that our thoughts go to. What lies are you battling currently? Fight the battle of your mind, but do so with God's truth. Let me put up a list. These are not all of God's truth, but these are the ones that have spoken to me recently. My prayer leading up to today 
out of everything that we've talked through, that there would be one truth of God that would hit you where you need it today. That it would untangle the, the lies that have been sown in your mind. And that these truths would take deep, deep, deep root in your heart and also in your thoughts. The truth is God's got this, that the Lord fights for me, that Jesus loves me. The truth is I'm a child of God and that he is able. The truth is his grace is sufficient. And when I am weak, he is strong. Joy comes in the morning. The truth is I'm not alone and that I am fearfully and wonderfully made. The truth is fear has no grip on me and God is good. The truth is nothing, let me say it again, nothing can separate me from God's love. The truth is Christ is enough for me, that Jesus has overcome the world. The truth is I am a new creation in Christ and I can and will be used by God. The truth is Jesus conquered sin and death, that sin does not define me, Jesus does. The truth is it is finished. What Jesus did on the cross, not only are we thankful for, but it radically transformed our lives forever, in this life and for all of eternity. And nothing we do will earn that love and grace and forgiveness. Nothing we do can separate us from that love and grace and forgiveness. For those that believe in Jesus and follow him with all their hearts and their minds, know we will not do it perfectly, but as we say, we stumble in the right direction together. Allow Jesus to transform your life. May it begin with the renewing of your mind, to fight the battles of the mind, to fight those thoughts, and to focus on the truths of God. There's a saying that is pretty popular. I bet you can finish it with me here in just a second, but Jesus is the one that said it. Many people probably don't give him credit for this. Jesus was talking with some of his followers, some of his disciples, even some people that were on the fence, not sure if they were gonna follow him or not. In John chapter eight, Jesus explains, well, a disciple is somebody that basically does what I tell them to do. I'm their king, I'm their Lord, I'm their savior. You follow my commands, you follow my example, you follow in my footsteps. He said, that's a disciple. And he says, if you know the truth, the truth will finish it, set you free. Jesus said that in John chapter eight, verse 31 and 32. If you know the truth, the truth will set you free. So when you know the truth about Jesus as your savior, it'll set you free. When you know the truth that you are no longer defined by your sin, but you're defined by Jesus, that will set you free. When you know the truth that he loves you more than you can possibly imagine and fathom, it sets you free. When you know the truth that God desires to use you in his kingdom, it sets you free. When you know the truth and you hold on to those truths in your mind, it's the truth that sets you free as you follow Jesus with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, and yes, with all of your mind. If you'd close your eyes with me at home and right here, I wanna give you a chance to respond. First and foremost, if you have not given your life to Jesus, if you have not given your heart and your mind to Jesus, you start there. There is no transformation until you give Jesus, your life. You begin there. Again, it's not modifying your behavior. It's not just trying to be a better person. It's giving Jesus you. He desires you. You are his kid and he wants you back. So you start there. 
Say, Jesus, I need you. Jesus, I trust you. Jesus, I need you to be my Lord, and my Savior, my King, my ruler. And I give you my life from this day forward. We continue to fight the battles of our mind and we continue to focus on the truths of God. Let's do that together. Jesus, thank you so much for all that you've already done. I pray that your Holy Spirit would pull one of those truths, maybe not even on the list, but a truth that we have that we can hold on to that is absolute truth because your word is true and good. I pray that one truth would just hit us in the heart and in the mind and where we need him, that it would begin to pull apart the lies that we've held onto that have held us hostage even. And we'd hold on to your truth, fight the battles of our mind. We would continue to focus our thoughts on you. Thank you for how we can learn from your words to these other local churches. Help us to not tolerate what you won't tolerate. Help us to not just sit and do nothing. Help us to follow you every step along the way. May we lead with our heart and our mind in Jesus' name.